So tomorrow is Memorial Day, and I was thinking this week, some people, maybe even here in this room, but that are new to the United States, that have maybe only been around for a couple Memorial Days, I was wondering, let's say they've never learned anything about U.S. history, and they were to just observe what we do as Americans on Memorial Day. And then you were to ask them, hey, what do you think Memorial Day is all about? What do you think the answer might be? So, been in the U.S. for a few years, let's say two, three years. Know nothing about U.S. history, and they just observe what Americans do on the last Monday of the month of May. Would you be surprised if you heard them say, Well, it's the first day of summer, it's when Americans open their swimming pools, they apparently like to do lots of shopping, there's tons of ads about new cars and new mattresses and all kinds of things. And it's also, it's also the day that they have in Indianapolis this famous IndyCar race. And would that be surprising? Or like, eh, that kind of sounds about right. People cook out and party. And apparently Americans just like to cook out and party shop and do a lot of fun things. For whatever reason, they do that and call it Memorial Day. Well, for nearly 150 years, if that's you, you're new to America, Americans have been gathering in the late spring to honor and sa- the sacrifice of those who have given their lives to their country. One of the first Memorial Days in American history that's been recounted is on May 1st, 1865, and it was a commemoration of a, a group of about 1,000 f- recently freed slaves, and they were in a wartime prison camp, and they were taking that camp, and they were making it a consecration for the bur- burial of many new deceased Union soldiers. So during that gathering, they sang some hymns. They read some scripture, they distributed flowers over this new cemetery, and so the tradition begins of what we now call Memorial Day. In fact, the practice of decorating graves was such a prominent part of Memorial Day from its start that it was originally called Decoration Day in its early years. So a little fun fact for you this morning, Memorial Day had its roots in what's called Decoration Day. Today, we have parades. There's ceremonies at Arlington Cemetery every year honoring what's called the Unknown Soldier. American flags are supposed to be half-mass until noon, and then after noon, they're raised back to full-mass at the top of the pole. Uh, And then every American is supposed to, since the year 2000, take a moment of remembrance at 3 p.m. at your local time across the time zones. And I was thinking about these things because once a year, our government has encouraged us as Americans to take a day off, remember the sacrifices that others have made so that we can enjoy the freedoms of this country. And throughout this message, I think you'll see why this is a timely message, a timely Memorial Day, because it is, I think, a perfect illustration of what we're going to consider in God's Word when we consider the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. So if you don't have your Bibles turned there yet, do turn with me to Exodus chapter 20. That's found on page 61 in the Black Bibles around you, Exodus chapter 20. 
I'm going to read all Ten Commandments so we can get them in their context, keep repeating them to you week after week. And then we're going to look primarily at verses 8 through 11, the fourth of the Ten Commandments about the Sabbath day. And hopefully you'll understand how this relates to even your celebration of Memorial Day as an American. Verse 1 of chapter 20, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. As we look at verses 8 through 11, I have three outline category points for you to think through that will summarize, hopefully, my thoughts or outline them for you. First, I want us to consider the summary of the Sabbath, and basically what I want us to do is make sure we understand what it is. And we've been doing that each week. We looked first at the first commandment, no gods before me. Second commandment, make no idols or images. Third commandment, don't take the Lord's name in vain. And so this week, I want us to begin and just look through these verses, verses 8 through 11, and summarize its main teaching to Israel in Exodus 20. Secondly, I want us to see the sweetness of the Sabbath. So if the first point, we're really going to consider like what it is and what it's supposed to communicate to us, how we're to obey it and follow it. And the second point, I want us to enjoy the sweetness of the Sabbath. And then thirdly, I'd like us to finish this message and understand the Sabbath as a sign. So three words, summary, sweetness, and a sign. Summary, sweetness, sign. Let's first look at this passage and let's break down each of its different phrases and answer hopefully many of your questions. It's a summary, so I'm not going to answer all of them. That's the key word here. So first, when you look at verses 8 through 11, and you just objectively look at all of the Ten Commandments right there in your Bible in front of you, is there anything that pops out? And I think there should be two things that pop out right away. The first is that it's the longest. Did you notice that it has the longest explanation 
out of all the other Ten Commandments. So that, that pops out. Secondly, another thing that pops out is it breaks a pattern that you see in most of the commandments where you see you shall not, you shall not, you shall not have, you shall not take, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, and it has our first of two positive commands. And so it's not in the form of you shall not, it's remember. And so let's begin there. Remember, what does that mean? Remember the Sabbath day. Like, don't forget about it? I think actually, yes, there's this extent. Like, don't forget that there's going to be a day after six days of working where you stop. And this is not based on moon patterns like many of the other days of remembrance that were in this Israel. So if you had following the moon patterns that were going around, you would know, okay, this festival's coming up, and okay, so it doesn't take much work to remember. You just would look out in the sky and see, oh, it's time to do that festival. Whereas this is just a continual, regular, weekly cycle, as we now know it, a week. So after every six days, they're supposed to Sabbath or stop. That's what the word means. So remember the cease day. I want to make it very literal. Remember the stop day. You're not supposed to forget to stop. Don't forget to stop what? Stop working, you see in verse 9. Stop your labor and all of your work. And by doing that, he says, that will keep it holy. I don't think it's trying to make it somehow anything more than what you just see right in the text. To keep the Sabbath day holy is to stop working. And that, by doing that very activity, by stop doing activity of your normal work, That's setting it apart. That's what the word holy means. Okay, so let's take this piece of paper. If I tear it, this is now separate from this piece. And what you're supposed to think is this is six days, and then this one's different. It's set apart. It's not like these other six days. So for six days, you work, and then on this day, you don't work. Then you go back to six days and see how they're different, they're distinct. That's what it means to be holy. To be distinct, to be cut off is the literal definition of holy. And God is the ultimate one who is holy and cut off and distinct and so separate from us. And so in our time as we work throughout the week, God's people have set aside time to make it distinct from the rest of the week. Which is, I think, helpful or useful as you're starting to think practically about questions for yourself. If you want to obey this command in its principle, as we'll get to in our questions, you should make sure that what you're doing on the Sabbath is distinct from what you're doing on those other days. Do you sit in an office all day? Well, then maybe you should do a lot of exercise. Do you spend a lot of time reading and studying and engaging your brain? Well, then don't do that on that day. You know, it could be different for each of us. The sense is that we do different jobs. So in in their day, they were very much agricultural, and so they would stop working, gathering sticks, for example. Did you catch that in Numbers chapter 15? He was doing work outside to help build something or create a fire or whatever. He was working and he didn't stop. And so they're like, what are we going to do with this? Well, eventually the word was put him to death. Which means this is serious. To keep it holy. Now think about the Memorial Day idea. Once out of the year, we set aside, we distinctly stop working on a day throughout the year, the last Monday of May. And it's supposed to be originally a day that's sacred. It's holy. It's set apart not for you to just cook out, although you may enjoy your freedoms in that way. 
And I'm sure that some of the people want you that have given their lives to honor your freedoms by enjoying the freedom of the land by having cookouts. But do you see what our government's been trying to do throughout the last 150 years? No, there's a solemnness. There's a sacredness to this day. And you're supposed to take work off so you can take a moment to pause and remember that you're only here because somebody else died for you. See the difference? So, all your other days are just normal, going through the routine, and then stop on the seventh day. Stop and remember. Remember God. It should be a God-centered day. It was the day filled with worship throughout the Old Testament. And so by obeying this command, they would make that day distinct and holy and different from the other days. And so they would make themselves distinct. In fact, I might argue that this one commandment with the other three that we've covered is what sets Israel apart from every other nation that existed in that day. One of the books I was reading this week said, and I quote, there is no clear evidence of a Sabbath day outside of the Old Testament tradition, meaning Egyptians did not take a day off. Assyrians did not take a day off. All of the Amorites and the Hittites and the Jebusites and all the other nations that would have been around Israel, they did not do this. They did not have their God say, hey, by the way, I would like you to take a day off once a week. They were to be slaves, working tirelessly for their God. So this sets Israel apart in a way, externally, that makes them very different from everyone else. And that is, in fact, God's idea with these Ten Commandments from the beginning. Now, having a law not murdering isn't too uncommon. Having a law to not steal, that's in other nations. But this command... Oh, now we're starting to get to the very core of what these Ten Commandments are about. They're God-centered. They're to trust in God. They're to stop what you're doing and give remembrance of God. And so that's briefly what it means to keep it holy and to set them as a nation apart. And that's why it says, remember this Sabbath day. This is important. This is serious. This will set you apart from every other nation. So keep it holy. Now we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about this next phrase. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then look at verse 9. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And what I want us to think through here is a little bit about us. So do we keep a Sabbath? Is this what we're supposed to do? Which day are we supposed to obey this, etc., etc.? Now I want you to first notice that it does not mention a day of the week because they didn't exist. There was no Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Saturday, Sunday. Those come later. But the pattern of a week, you see, actually comes from the Bible. Some nations like France and Russia have done experiments to say, oh, we want to reject everything that has to do with God and Christianity and Judaism and the Bible, so we're going to have, let's say, 10-day weeks. And I don't know if you've ever learned about that, but it did not work well. For whatever reason, in God's providence, we work best when we have six days on and one day off. And so we've cycled our entire calendar, as especially Western society and Americans, around the seven-day week. But do not be confused that there was not a special day that he said, okay, now set aside Saturday. That's the Sabbath. He simply says, six days you work, and then after that sixth day, do no work on the seventh day. Then start that pattern over again. 
So that starts to, I think, help us understand why Paul would say this. And if you want, turn with me to Romans 14. So when we jump over to the New Testament, in Romans chapter 14, we see a very helpful teaching about, I believe he's talking about Sabbaths. Look at Romans chapter 14. This is, can, can be found on page 948. At the very bottom of page 948, verse 5 says this. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. And then he talks about eating sacrificed food. But just when you pause right there, verses 5 and 6. So some people, let's say Jews in Rome, who have a background of six days I work, and then on the seventh day, the Sabbath day, I don't work, they might esteem that day as special, sacred, and holy. But then in Rome, there were also these people that were non-Jews called Gentiles, and they were in the same church together, and Paul is helping these groups of people that are worshiping God together to say, listen, some of you esteem one day as more special, and some of you just say, well, aren't all days just basically the same? I mean, what really sets that day apart from another day? And he says, each of you should be convinced in your own mind, and whoever observes a special day to the Lord... They should do that in honor to the Lord. For those of you that observe all days as equally the same and all of them as honoring to the Lord, well, you should do that to the Lord. Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whether you take a day off as a special day or you don't, you should do it in honor to the Lord. So this is why it's really important for us to look at this passage in particular and as a church quickly apply this truth. We should not pass judgment on those of you in this room that are Sabbatarian. That's a view that some Christians have that on Sunday, it's the new Christian Sabbath. And so you don't do any work, and you think it's sinful for some of the people that are going to go to work, or they're not here today because they're at work. Some people have that view. They're called Sabbatarian Christians. Some of you can be members of this church. We do not make this a requirement for you to be a member of this church and hold that view. Some of you have the view, like Paul says in Romans 14, where you say every day is pretty much the same, and the Sabbath, in fact, has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ, as we'll see in just a little bit. So I can make every day my Sabbath. I can have continual rest in Jesus, and that's how I obey the Sabbath. And you know what we're supposed to do? Love each other. Agree to disagree. Study the Bible, but not yelling at each other encourage each other in the way we're thinking through it. Maybe someone's thoughts are not real mature in it, and so you can sharpen them with your view. But if at the end of the day you demand or you judge or you call them into question about this, then you are out of bounds in Scripture and you're out of bounds in this church. Our church has decided as a church we are not going to require that view as one that's necessary for you to do church life together. So that's extremely important. But it still begs the question, why do we then worship on Sunday morning? And why do some Christians hold a strong view of this is the new Sabbath in the New Testament? The reason is because Jesus was risen from the dead on Sunday. That's why we worship on Sunday. I'm personally not a Sabbatarian, so I don't believe this is the Christian Sabbath. But I do believe that this is the most appropriate day, according to Scripture and church tradition, to worship Jesus. 
If you read Revelation 1.10, you can just jot that down. We don't need to look at it. But it says that John was praying and worshiping on the Lord's day, and he saw a vision of Jesus. And that little phrase has been used. Sunday, the first day of the week, is the Lord's day. It's the day that the Lord Jesus rose again from the dead. And so we set that day aside as a remembrance of what Jesus did to rise from the dead over the victory of death in our sins. Listen to this from Acts chapter 20, verse 7. So, hey, what did the early Christians do when they first started gathering together as churches 2,000 years ago, right after Jesus ascended to heaven? What did the very earliest Christians do? Acts chapter 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we gathered together to break bread, and Paul talked and taught us into the night. He prolonged his speech well into midnight. It's actually the somewhat humorous, sad, unfortunate story, however you want to describe it, when Eutychus falls asleep because Paul preaches and teaches so long late into the night that he falls in the windowsill that he's sitting backwards and he dies. Whew! I know I've put a few of you guys to sleep, but hopefully none of you have died because of it, you know? On the Jewish calendar, what's the first day of the week, though? It says on the first day of the week in Acts chapter 20, verse 7. It's Sunday. Sunday's the first day of the week that early Christians gathered together to break bread together, which is, I think, a phrase talking about the Lord's Supper and actual meals that they eat together, which is why we practice that regularly throughout the year, downstairs, lunches after church. There's Bible teaching, there's song singing. They gathered on the first day of the week. Now, here's the interesting thing. Study church history. My findings are that in the New Testament and all through the first two, three hundred years of the early church, Christians worked on Sundays. So they worshiped on Sunday because of the resurrection of Jesus. But you're saying they didn't take work off? They did not have a choice. They were not a nation state like Israel where God was their king or when God appointed a king like David or a Solomon that they could make rules. They were subjected by Jesus himself that says, pay to Caesar what's Caesar. You're to obey the Roman government. And the Roman government did not give them Sundays off. So they went to work. So they either worshipped, and the indication here is that they worshipped late in the night, or sometimes they gathered early before work, Sunday morning. I think it's really useful for all of us to be thinking about how easy it is at times to worship and remember that many Christians have had much more difficult circumstances where they went to worship, not just early in the morning waking up and not just late at night where it led to some people's deaths as they fell out of a windowsill. They made sacrifices. And ultimately, many of them made sacrifices for their lives because as they went in those worship gatherings and as Roman soldiers and government officials saw these worship gatherings, they would put these Christians to death. Do you see the difference? When you look at the early church, they did not equate Sunday as the new Christian Sabbath, as far as I can tell. As far as I can tell, they considered that was a special day because Jesus rose from the dead and we're going to celebrate that every week. So that's why I don't call this our Sabbath day, personally. Some of you might feel that way, and you can, and we can agree to disagree. But I do think that there is a pattern in Revelation chapter 1, in Acts chapter 20, verse 7, and then one more you can take note of. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2 is another evidence. Listen to this. On the first day of every week, I would like each of you to put something aside, store it up, 
in whatever he may so that he would prosper. And that when I come, there will be a time for collecting. Paul is instructing the church in Corinth that on the first day of the week, they set aside some money or some gifts so that way they can help poor Christians around the area. Does that kind of sound like what we do when we gather on the first day of the week and we take an offering? Well, here's one of the biblical reasons why we do that every week. We gather together and we encourage you to set aside a portion of your funds to help spread the ministry of the gospel here and abroad and do the work that God's called us to. So there seems to be a pattern in the New Testament of first day of the week gathering, not seventh day, which would have been Saturday, and that's why we're here today. I also think that Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 takes it a step further. There's not just a pattern, but there is a command And in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, it says, Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So are you commanded to gather for worship regularly? Yes. Are you commanded to gather for worship on Sunday? Uh, Probably not with any definitiveness. Seems like that's the best pattern. But we can't say that if you don't, you're sinning if you worship on Friday. In fact, when we go to Dubai, some of us from this church, they do church on Friday because that's the day that the Muslim government gives everybody off. So they're like, well, let's just worship on Friday. And so they do church on Friday. Are they in sin? Or is that not as clear and prescriptive? It's just descriptive. I do believe that if you do not attend regularly to a local church, That you're in sin. Do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So all of you can be like, whoo, came today, feeling good. I'm not sinning today. Now, I think that's one of the things I want to make sure we're not doing as a church. Some of you will use your Christian freedom to do things on Sunday and skip church. Some of you will decide that you're going to make sure you're at church every single Sunday unless you're like sick and you can't get out of bed, or some of your kids are sick. And please do. If your kids are sick, it's okay for you to not come to church and spread their germs to everyone else. It's happened. Three years we've been at church, kids get sick, then they spread the germs to everyone else, and then all the kids are sick. Now the whole church is sick. I'm exaggerating, but you get the point, right? The idea is there is a principle of gathering regularly, and the principle throughout the Bible is every six days you shall work, and on the seventh day or some pattern, rest. And I'd encourage you, even just very practically speaking, you should be thankful that your government, for most of you, gives you two days off because as they were trying to figure out, now which day are we going to have off? The Jewish Saturday or the Christian Sunday? Oh, let's give them both. I mean, what other nations do that? This is a rare thing. God's word says six days you shall work and one day you shall take off. That is the normal pattern. So maybe for some of you, if your Saturday is a day off, maybe you should get a lot of work done around the house so that Sunday you can really devote it to friends, family, worship, reading good books, serving the poor, helping people in the community, and using a day that's just different from all the normal grind of everyday life. But that could be Sunday, that could be Saturday, that could be Monday, as far as I can tell. And maybe there's people in the room that might disagree and say, no, it should be Sunday. (laughs) The point is, is there are a lot of questions as you're probably starting to think like, okay, so what's right, what's not right, this or that. Let's get the big idea here. 
We as Christians are in a church with elders and mature spiritual people. You should have a lot of these detailed conversations in those relationships. So set up a meeting with an elder this week to say, I don't know if I'm using my time well. Can you help me think through that? Your time is probably one of your most precious gifts. Your possessions, let's say something breaks. Well, you can save up money and replace it. Can you replace time? Can you ever get that back? I watched a silly YouTube video last night, and the guy said, you're not getting that minute back. I was thinking about this. Yeah. Are we frivolous with the way we spend our time? Some of us need to look at this commandment and say, I don't need more rest. I need to do more work. I'm not even working six days. I'm not even working five days. I'm pretty lazy. I don't know what that is for you, but I think all of us as a church should take these principles and try and apply them to our lives and use our time well in the context of those discipling relationships. I think that's enough for us because I don't want us to just be thinking constantly about, all right, what am I supposed to do and not do? Then you're going to miss really the whole point. So let's start moving toward that end. The last phrase we need to see is in verse 9 and 10 of Exodus chapter 20. Let's turn back there. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, or your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or your sojourner with it's in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. One thing I wanted to make sure you pointed out is who should not do any work on the Sabbath day in Israel? Everyone. You may not have noticed this. I didn't. I'll confess. But I was thankful that somebody that I read a book this week pointed it out. Watch this. You shall not do any work. You, one. Your son, two. Your daughter, three. Your male servant, four. Your female servant, five. Your livestock, six. And your sojourner, seven. Coincidence? I don't think so. Seven is the number of perfection and completion. It means no one should be working. So it's not like, I'll take a day off and I'll make my wife work. I'll take a day off and I'll just put the kids to work. I'll take a day off and I'll just hire somebody to do the work for me. No, just stop working. I think that even applies to some of you if you have a business. Don't be like, well, I may stop working, but I'll just make everybody else work. It might be wise to give them a day off too. Anyway, we see the passage continue to say, in six days the Lord made the heaven and earth. The reason, the motivation for obeying this command that God gave Israel is because God first set up the earth in six days and then he rested on the seventh day. Now, I gave an entire message just about eight, nine months ago through Genesis, and so we're not going to go over all of that. I'd encourage you to just go back to our church website, and I preached on the story of rest and about why does God rest? Well, he's not tired. He never sleeps. It's not like he was making the earth. It was like, whew, man, I need a break. And what we explained in that message is that the seventh day, God stopped the creation work because he was done. It was complete. There was nothing to add to it. You couldn't be like, well, let's mess with this, God. No, it's done. Like he did a good job. So don't mess with it. Creation was good. And then we messed with it and cursed it. That's what we did. That's Genesis chapter 3. But when the Lord rests, 
The idea is that there is no morning and evening on the seventh day, and it's a perpetual state of rest where God enjoins his creation in time and space and lives and communes with them. Time, the seventh day, that goes on for forever. And space, the garden that he makes, is especially distinct from the rest of the earth where he enters in. That was several months ago. So that's what's being reminded to them in this verse. Six days the Lord made the heaven and earth and he, he holied them. He sanctified them. He entered into that time and space. So you then too should enter into him in that time and space on that seventh day. But turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5 because I think it's important for you to realize that the Ten Commandments, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, are given twice. Once to the first generation of Israelites in the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 20, and then all their parents die because of their disobedience and God's judgment, and that's the whole book of Numbers. And then when the children grow up, Moses gives the commandments again. But when you get to the Sabbath, he does not say the same things. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 1, uh, verses 12 through 15, on page 150. Notice what he says here. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So far, so good. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, and your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, or any livestock, or the sojourner that's within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. Again, pretty much the same. And then, verse 15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Interesting, isn't it? He makes no mention of creation and God's rest in Deuteronomy 5. He simply says, I want you to think about the fact that you used to be slaves, and God saved you with his mighty hand. That redemption, that rescue is the motivation for you to take a day off and rest in God. Because what did you do to save yourself from Egypt? Nothing. So rest once a week. This is one of the reasons why I do not believe that there is a creation ordinance that sets up the Sabbath for all time, everywhere. Every single human must take a day off, and if they don't, they're sinning to God. You might be sinning if you're taking a day off because you're not trusting in God, because you're overworking yourself, you're getting anxious, you're worried, and you don't believe God will take care of yourself. That's a different issue. What I'm saying is that we don't see any evidence of the Sabbath being practiced by Abraham, by Noah, by a lot of the figures in the book of Genesis. I don't understand the creation ordinance view, which is oftentimes the main reason why Sabbatarians argue for Yes, if you're a Christian, you must take Sunday as your day off. If you don't, you're sinning. Deuteronomy 5 gives us the part of the reason why you should take a day off is to remember God's salvation. Remember that God saved you out of slavery. It honors us when we take a day off. It honors the deceased soldiers when we take a day off on Memorial Day and remember what they did, right? Isn't that what we're trying to do with Memorial Day as Americans? So it would honor the Lord if we would take regular times off and remember that he has saved us from spiritual slavery. We should stop what we're doing each week and look to Jesus and remember he has set us free. Which leads me to our second point, the sweetness of the Sabbath. 
Isn't God's law good? This, this, this was the part of my preparation that I felt a rich meditation of how good God is. How sweet he is. Deuteronomy 10 says, Israel, what does God require you but to fear God with all of your ways, to love him, to serve God with all your heart, to keep his commandments, which I am commanding you today for your good. I love that verse. Israel, what should you do to obey and honor God? Love him, fear him, obey his commands. And oh, by the way, my commands are good. Good for you. I think it's so terrible that many people look at the Sabbath as a burden. Oh man, I gotta take a day off? Really? Really? Anybody complaining that you don't have work tomorrow? Oh, that federal government, they want us to take another day off. Really? God is so good. He is unlike all the other taskmaster gods, pharaohs, kings, leaders. He gives people rest. How good is he? 1 John 5.3 says, This is the love of God, that we obey and keep his commandments because his commandments are not burdensome. That's what love for God is. Keep his commands because his commands are so good for you. Can you say with the psalmist in Psalm 119, your ways are a delight, much as all riches. Your precepts I meditate and fix on my eyes all day long. I delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I lift up my hands toward your commandments. I love them. I meditate on your statutes. The laws of your mouth are better than gold or silver. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. How sweet are your words to my taste. They are sweeter than honey to my mouth. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. How weird is that language? All of those verses I read to you, picked out from one, Psalm 119, are all talking about how much we love laws. How many of you have spent time recently studying the Constitution of the United States in preparation for Memorial Day, and you thought to yourself, oh, how I love these laws. Oh, I meditate them day and night. They are better than gold or silver. I could have these laws or I could have gold. Give me the laws. You see what I'm saying? These psalmists are talking from the depths of their being and say, I would rather have these commandments. They are so sweet to me. I have to think, knowing how central and prominent the Sabbath was, that many of them were thinking, how sweet is it that our God gives us rest? How sweet is it that he commands, I've got everything, trust me. How sweet is it that he wants them to remember their days of slavery and contrast that with what it's like to be ruling under the God Yahweh. You should, if you've been reading Exodus, and you get to the Ten Commandments, you would have already read chapter 1. That's kind of how books work, right? This is chapter 20 that we're reading now. You're supposed to read chapter 1 first. And in chapter 1, listen to what it says it was like to live as slaves in Egypt. Now there was a new king that rose in Egypt. And he said to the people, oh my, behold, the nation of Israel is growing too many and too mighty for us. Come, 
We need to deal truly with them unless they multiply and war could break out and they could join enemies and fight against us and that would be terrible. So then they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with very heavy burdens. They built up for Pharaoh stores of cities and they were oppressed more and more. The more they multiplied, the more they were oppressed. And the Egyptians were the dread of the people of Israel. So ruthlessly did they make the people of Israel's work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all the work, they ruthlessly made their work as slaves. I think you're supposed to get the point that it was bad. It was bitter. It was hard. It was ruthless. It was heavy. He repeats himself again and again as Moses is reminding the people. As he writes chapter 1, slavery in Egypt was bad. (laughs) Exclamation point, bold print. The God of Yahweh, he gives you days off. Do you think Pharaoh gave them weekends off? 40 hours. And then if you work over 40, I'll give you some overtime pay. Like, no, no. Not even close. That's not what you read here. And you thought your job was bad. You thought your boss was tough. Israel was supposed to remember. We used to be in that situation and we have a much better taskmaster. We have a much better God. Pharaoh's not the king. Christ is king. Jesus is king. Yahweh is king. The Sabbath is sweet. It is so sweet because it is not only a gift to take a day off in and of itself, but it is sweet because lastly and finally, it is a sign that points to something so much more, greater, sweeter, made my eyes water up and cry, and I don't normally do that, so I hope I don't do that again. I was writing this stuff out that I'm about to share with you, and I just got like all caught up with emotion, like, man, God is sweet. The sign of the Sabbath is such a sweet picture, a sign that helps us see what Jesus is like. Turn with me to Exodus 31. Exodus chapter 31. Verses 12 and 13. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Above all. Above all, this is the one law. This is the one sign. This is the one commandment that's going to help determine my relationship between me and you. Are you starting to see this one was a big deal? But it's a big deal because it was a sign. And so for us today, we need to see, okay, in what way was that a sign that pointed to something? And and has that sign been fulfilled in such a way that we don't need the sign anymore? We can just look at the real thing. Let me say it this way. This was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant, a relationship between God and his people. Do you all remember some of the other covenants, those of you that know your Bibles fairly well? There was a covenant made with Noah. Say it if you know. The sign of the covenant with Noah was a a rainbow. Now, that's not just pretty and cute and there's like a pot of gold at the end. No, no, no. That's not what's going on with the rainbow. The rainbow is about God's bow 
That's the literal word, like his bow and arrow. And it's not pointing down toward heaven, from heaven to earth. It is pointing up and saying, I will never destroy and attack and flood the earth again. The bow is pointed up and away from you. It's a sign. It's just a beautiful sign, but it's saying something. It's saying something more than just a rainbow. Then another covenant was made with Abraham, and the sign of the covenant, say it if you know it, was few less people. Circumcision, and that one's obviously a little bit awkward and weird to talk about, but God promised that through the descendants, through the seed of the man, Abraham, he would have a whole nation of people. So through children, and so you can now have conversations with your children if they have questions about that, but do you get the connection here? Without going into too many details. The sign connected with the promise. And the sign is about cutting off and circumcising and saying, you're going to be cut off. This nation is going to be cut off through your children. And they're going to be distinct and set apart. All of these signs had a second meaning to them than the actual external thing. So that begs the question, what is the sign of the covenant of the Sabbath pointing to? What does it mean? One final passage. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. The explanation of the sign of the Sabbath covenant. I'm going to pick it up in verse 13. This is page 984 in the Black Bibles. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. Therefore, now, read well, okay? Be a good reader. Everything that I just read to you said that God did something great. He made you alive. He canceled the record of debt. He nailed it to the cross. He disarmed Satan and the rulers and the authorities. He triumphed over them. He did something. Therefore, verse 16, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to festival or a new moon or, there it is, Sabbath. So the New Testament talks about Sabbath very few times. And here's one of them. And what does it say? Don't pass judgment on those who have Sabbaths or new moons or festivals. And I'm convinced he's talking about the weekly Sabbath, as I've studied this passage, but look at verse 17. These things, including the Sabbath and the new moon and the festivals, these things were shadows, but the substance belongs to Christ. So just like all the other signs, they had a deeper meaning. The Sabbath was a sign pointing to Jesus. How? How is the Sabbath pointing as a shadow and the Christ being the substance. The Sabbath was a picture of God's people laying down their work and resting in God. Don't do any work. 
The gospel of Jesus Christ is the substance to which that points. The reality of God's people laying down their spiritual works, their moral works, resting completely in God. Don't do any work to save yourself ever. Not now, not tomorrow, not the next day. Jesus Christ has conquered. That's the reality. The Sabbath was just a shadow. The Sabbath was a day to stop working and trust that God would provide. The gospel is about stop working and trusting that Jesus has already provided. The Sabbath was very serious. Even people who gathered sticks would receive the just penalty of death. But the gospel shows just how serious Jesus is about his commitment and his love to you. He perfectly obeyed the Sabbath. He was accused of breaking the traditions of men on the Sabbath, as we read earlier in Matthew chapter 12, so that you and I who are Sabbath breakers and don't trust God with our lives would receive the un, so that he would receive the unjust penalty of death. That man in Numbers 15 got death for the Sabbath. You should get death for your failure to trust God and break God's commands. But Jesus took it, even though he never broke the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a gift of grace to the Old Testament Israel for people stuck in slavery. But the gospel, it is a gift of eternal rest, a gift of grace for all of you that are stuck in spiritual slavery. The Sabbath was a day of worship. The God of Israel was worshipped because he finished his work of creation on the seventh day, Exodus 20. Six days you shall work, seventh day no work, because I finished my work on the seventh day, the gospel. The gospel of Jesus is an everyday celebration. The God of Israel became flesh, and when he finished his work on the cross of new creation, he cried out with a mighty shout, it is finished. It's finished. I'm done my work. You can't add to it. You can't make it better. It's finished. I'm done. And he worked so hard on that cross to stay spit mocked in his face and on the seventh day he rested in the grave and on the first day of the new week he rose again victorious and triumph. The Sabbath was a sign of the old covenant marking off the people of Israel as a nation that they would have a day off that unlike all the other tyrants and rulers, their constitution said take a day off but the gospel of Jesus marks us off by the body and blood of Jesus. That's what makes us different. This sign of the new covenant, the bread and the blood that we're about to drink, the body and blood of Jesus is the new religion that has come into the world that says this is the only religion that says believe and receive that it is finished. Lay all your works down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him gloriously complete. The gospel of Jesus proclaims to all followers, you do not need to make any more sacrifices. There was once and for all a sacrifice. Your good deeds will never add to the finished work of Jesus, so stop trying to make them. We're not different because of just our beliefs or our views. We're different because of Jesus. We find our justification, our satisfaction. All is Christ. He is the substance. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks this morning for the sweetness of your law, for the goodness of the gospel, for the way you point us to Christ in the Sabbath. Thank you for caring for us, loving us, and giving us everything that we've ever needed. Help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.
as we take the bread and